Well, here we are on our, our fourth study in this amazing book of Romans. Uh, just at the very start of it really, it's going to take quite a while for us to, uh, to get through it, but um, I'm sure that we will benefit from everything that we look at in this amazing um, gospel of Paul the book of Romans. And I'm going to uh, continue uh, and read again some of the verses that I've already read from Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a called apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Now last Tuesday afternoon, we were leaving the Lord Tonopandi and, and we noticed the, the festive display in the porch, advertising the Christmas fair that would be on offer not many days hence. And then on Sunday, David started his Sunday morning studies and talked to us about the first advent of Jesus, which of course is rooted in the Christmas story. So I don't see why I don't jump on the bandwagon and delve into the nativity myself. The Bible says, You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And of course, this is the Christmas statement that would sum up all that I have to say to you tonight. You know, we're talking about the gospel. The gospel. In fact, the whole of this book is about that one thing. You know, we saw last week, didn't we, that it's not any old gospel, but it is the gospel of God. You know, and that's important for us to know because there's a loads of Gospels out there. And it's the origin of the Gospel that is of the utmost importance. And here we see this Gospel finds its very roots in God himself. We also saw that this Gospel has been promised in the Scriptures which of course is another important aspect. You know, too many people are ridiculing the scriptures and peddling another gospel, which is more humanly rational and people-friendly. And it's many things. It does many things, but it's not the gospel of God. You're not a new thing, of course. Paul has to deal with such foolishness in the book of Galatians. You know, we're talking 20, 
25 years after Christ and already humanity is impressing its own system of belief upon it trying to conform the gospel to an image that will suit the years of those who have little affinity with God you know this isn't new at all History is littered with different types of the gospel, different versions of the gospel, different parts of the gospel. As I said, Galatians is the, uh, is the, uh, the, the one that we can look at the most and say that, yes, it, it, it's the gospel, but it needs something else to be added to it in order to make it vibrant and, and, uh, and efficient. But no, Paul is talking about the gospel of God. And that's all we need to know tonight. That's all we need to understand. Is that this is the gospel that Paul is so painstakingly putting before us as we study this amazing book. Now, tonight, I want us to look into the content of this gospel. We've seen its importance. We've seen its origin. We've seen its standing. What's it all about? What does it entail? You know, just look around today and observe all the pretenders to this gospel. Go to churches where rites and ceremonies are up there. Go to other places and this rigid legalism is you. There's popery, there's charity, there's disciplines, there's experiences. You know, the supernatural and the spirit world. And of course, what we are seeing more and more is world domination through violence and terrorism. But which one is right? Which one should we follow, you in Emmanuel Christian Fellowship? Which one will lead us to God? Which one will take us into eternal life? Which is the one that we should adhere to? Which one is right? You know, we must know, for our understanding of the gospel is fundamental to our eternal well-being. Get it wrong, and you are lost forever. There is no second chance. We have to know what is the true gospel of God. Well, Paul obviously knows because he's actually writing a book about it. And what's more, as you read Paul's epistles, you can't fail to notice that he gleaned this definition of the gospel from God himself. We saw that last week from Ephesians 3. So what does he say? Well, it's strange really, because it's not about something. It's rather about someone. It's not about an idea or a discipline or a system of beliefs. It's basically about a person. You know, I said last week that we cannot separate the gospel from God. And here he is in the flesh. God himself. Or as we started tonight, you shall call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from the sin. Now, I don't know about you, but if Jesus is the gospel then I want to know as much as I can about him. If it is to him that we are drawn, not to some set of rules or some disciplines 
or even experiences or even some supernatural journey that we feel we have to go on. If it's all about Jesus and our relationship with him, then I want to know, we want to know, no, we need to know as much as we can about him. You know, and Paul doesn't disappoint in this great epistle. He gives us an amazing description of this unique and yet mysterious person around which the gospel itself revolves. Now I need, I need to be a little technical here because the Greek in this next bit is so different from the New King James Version. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now you would be forgiven for thinking that that is how Paul wrote it. But you would be wrong. The NIV is so much closer in style to the original, although I'm not too fussy on their translation. But this is how they put it. Regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now for those of us who are following in the New King James Version, you must notice that between the words Son and the words Jesus Christ, there is this amazing sentence that fully sums up the nature of Christ. A nature that is demanded if he is to be our saviour. You know, and really speaking, it's almost identical to that classic Philippian passage. Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death, the death of a cross. You see, being the Son of God didn't automatically mean that he is our saviour you know we know don't we that there are certain things that not even God can do and this is one of them he cannot save us as God he can only save us as man you see it is man who has messed up it, it is man who has taken humanity into sin it is man that has estranged himself from God. It is man who has fouled and is suffering the consequences. And it is man who must put right those wrongs and those issues. But the problem is, man is incapable of putting things right. So God must become man to rescue us. You know, in our dealings in Hebrews, we saw that the pastor there, the writer, enlightens us as to why God must become flesh. God is spirit, he says. He has no substance. And more importantly, he has no blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. 
And so we have this comprehensive description of the God-man. How does John put it? He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of an only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He can only save us as a man. And here He is. Our only hope of redemption, our only hope of reconciliation to the Father. He had to be God in order to present the perfect sacrifice unaffected by the sin of Adam. But he had to be man in order to bleed. And so, of course, we have the whole doctrine of the virgin birth to consider, where God bypasses the normal way of bringing a life into the world. And as the announcing angel declared to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. As I've said so often, it's because of the virgin birth that Christ has broken the genealogy of sin. And for the first time in history, a human baby was born without sin. Perfect, pure, spotless, untainted, without sin. So that he could present the perfect sacrifice to a perfect God. And so in describing the Son in such a way, Paul is then able to introduce him as Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus, our Saviour. God, yet clothed in flesh. Christ, our Redeemer. Man, with the power of God to deliver. Lord, our Lord, our God, to whom we have been reconciled. Hallelujah! For Jesus Christ, our Lord, he fits or ticks all the boxes that needs to be ticked. God is satisfied or can be satisfied with this person because he is pure and spotless. He cannot be satisfied with anyone else because they are born in sin, shaped in iniquity. No one could present perfection to God other than this virgin-born baby that we see in our Christmas mangers. But at the same time, in between the words Son and the words Jesus Christ, Paul comprehensively describes uh, the means of us gaining or receiving this all-embracing gift. Of salvation. He expands on this theme later on in the book where he gives us a complete breakdown of the elements of faith. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Well, I think that this is most important for us to keep in mind. When is a person saved? I've already talked of 
the pretenders to this gospel, the rites, the ceremonies, the rigid legislation, popery, charity, disciplines, experiences, the supernatural, the spirit world, and of course, world domination through violence and terrorism. We can add to that infant baptism or adult baptism, sacraments, all these different things set out to either enhance this salvation or to work out our own salvation. You know, and uh, this is the question I asked the last time I spoke on a Sunday night when I asked, what did Jesus mean when he says, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What does the water symbolize? And when you think of that question, you have to be very careful. Because whatever your answer will be, that will become a part of the salvation process. Is the water baptism? Well, no. It cannot be baptism because that would mean that if you're not baptized, then you were not saved. Then we could go to Galatians where the false teachers there are insisted on circumcision as a part of the process, which Paul strongly opposes in some very, very strong language. Circumcision, of course, would suggest that we have to keep the law in order to be saved. You know, today we could add the keeping of the Sabbath, the complete abstinence from alcohol, the disciplines of prayer, Bible reading, attendance at church, witnessing to others. You know, while in, in other people, the individual might expect to feel something when he gives his life to Jesus. The overwhelming peace or joy or excitement. You know, and if you didn't have that when you give your life to Jesus, then how do you know you're saved? Are you saved? If we didn't feel anything, if we didn't feel a release, if we didn't feel a peace, if we didn't feel a joy, are you saved then? But Paul blows all that apart in our text here tonight. And of course, the Roman 10, Romans 10 verse I've just read, it's as simple as if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Even if you haven't been baptized, even if you didn't feel the joy and the peace and the, and the um, exhilaration, even if you were not circumcised, even if you didn't keep the Sabbath, even if you drank a little wine, you were saved through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, and in other words, our salvation is only concerned with our understanding of and our trust in Jesus Christ our Lord. And there is nothing more to be attached to it. We are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. Nothing else. 
is attached to it. No disciplines, no rites, no ceremonies, no feelings, no experiences. Yes, you may be fortunate. And you may have enjoyed some of the things that I talked about. Warm feelings, ecstatic experiences, deep peace. Yes, and yes, good they may be. And, re and rejoice in that. But if nothing happened, when you committed your life to Christ, if there was no bells and whistles and fireworks going off in your soul, if nothing happened when you committed your life to Christ, you are no less saved than the other person who shrieks with delight. Faith. Faith, that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 10. Faith which needs no sight whatsoever to be active in your life. And coming back to our text tonight, these words that go between Son and Jesus Christ, what do they tell us? They tell us that our Saviour is God's Son who came in the flesh and whose resurrection proved that He was the perfect Lamb of God, that His sacrifice was perfect, without spot, and without blemish. It tells us that his name is Jesus and that he saves his people from our sins, from their sins. It tells us that he is the Christ in whom God has invested his own authority and it tells us that Jesus is Lord. He's God. How do we know that? Because he was raised from the dead. Any fault, any blot, any spot, any wrinkle that appeared in the life of Christ would have condemned him to that grave forever. But having said it is finished and died, God said it is sufficient and raised him from the dead. You know, if you're a Jew, you would know from the Septuagint that that means he is God if he is called Lord. You see, that was the word for God in the Old Testament. The word Lord. You know, and um, if you're a Gentile, you would know that that means he is God. Because that's how... The Caesars would identify themselves as they would put deity into their titles. And if you're a Christian, you would know that that, because the Bible tells us so. Next time, we'll continue to look into these great claims that Paul makes for Jesus. You know, and uh, I don't think there's time on earth to examine all the claims of Jesus. He is so complex, infinite, holy and righteous, and yet here he is, as a man, set before us, before God, 
who says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Before God, who accepts the sacrifice for sin that he makes upon the cross. Before us, a loving Saviour. A loving Saviour who calls us to himself who invites us to partake of his inheritance, who talks to us of the gift of eternal life that he is so willing to give to us. Claims. So many claims. So many things that become apparent because of who Jesus is and what he did for us there upon the cross and what happened afterwards as he was raised from the dead. So many claims that we could get into. And next time, next time we will look into some of these great claims that Paul makes for Jesus. But until then, until that moment, let's just rest in the fact that Jesus Paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. God washed it. God washed me. God washed you as white as snow. For his name's sake. Amen.